You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. This is I Love You Keep Going. It is December 14th, 2023 at 7.35 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And I thought that I would talk a little bit about uh, the direction of practice and what we're trying to get out of practice, maybe reflect back a little bit on this year of practice. Um, this is the time, uh, this last part of December, where the top 10 lists come out and uh, and there there's the summation for the year. And I think that it can be useful to do that if uh, we employ it as a as a way of supporting and encouraging practice, not as a, a method of berating ourselves for the the practice we didn't do. We have a very loose definition of what good practice is. Good practice is the practice that you do, and bad practice is the practice that you don't do. And so we want to be able to um, <clears throat> orient ourselves. Uh, with an intentionally positive attitude toward practice, because we all know how we relate to chores. We just don't do that if we can get away with it. <laughs> what is the purpose of practice? We all come for a reason, right? Um, what is the reason that you came? Everybody's reason is quite unique and specific to them. But in the West, I think uh, we're still at a point where People are coming to practice because of their uh, suffering and they're coming to Buddhist meditation practice since it's such a small niche of what goes on in this country because uh, other approaches that they have tried have not actually helped them enough. I don't say that it doesn't help, but maybe not enough. Um, and we also have a capacity to look inward, which is... Uh, uh, in some sense, um, a level of mentalizing that if you don't have, uh, it's harder to do. One of the reasons at Metagroup that we focus on the attachment work is that uh, a lot of the people that come, uh, at least when I was uh, teaching it against the stream, a lot of the people that would come would be in, in uh, states of suffering, but also not really be able to meditate well enough to get uh, enough out of the meditation that it would be relieving of that. So there's uh, the, this basic path into meditation, which starts with uh, really making a decision, I think, to be a good person. That's how I like to put it. Uh, mainly, if you were to think about myself and my life, it was the foregoing of the need for power. It was the foregoing of the need for revenge for the uh, different slights that I felt that I had experienced. Um, <clears throat> the need uh, uh, to find people that were safe and not going to be further harming was also something that was very challenging uh, for me at the beginning because I couldn't tell the difference between people who were likely to harm me and people who weren't likely to harm me. I mainly... Uh, because of uh, the level of disorganization in my life and uh, and the really lack of reliability, it was very hard to get anybody who was really uh, safe and reliable to be in relationship 
that to me because I couldn't show up very well. So uh, looking at that and setting up the what I think of as the prerequisites to practice, which is the focus on the attachment stuff, um, it is important uh, in order to meditate that you have a basic level of concentration, which means uh, some uh, capacity for consistent practice so that you can develop that level of <clears throat> concentration. And then a way of understanding how to practice. And one of the things about being in the West and having so many offerings available to us is we tend to skip from uh, practice to practice, uh, looking for a, a kind of immediate benefit. I noticed that uh, the 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 second wave of mass uh, psychedelia is sweeping <laughs> society. I I lived through the original one uh, in the 60s, although I'm sure there was uh, equivalent earlier paths that happened. It was just uh, the advent of mass media that made it seem uh, original. That uh, sense of breaking out of the limited identity, that rigid sense of self into a more uh, expansive uh, experience, which we are capable of, certainly. This um, removal of the identification with the limited identity as the controller, as the doer, as the creator, the author, the decision maker, and uh, stepping out of that into this expansiveness of consciousness and then watching the the, the activity of consciousness from that uh, self-place. Um, I like to, to uh, talk about Dharma maps as a, as a way of, of doing this. Um, although uh, not everybody uh, relates to the uh, Dharma maps, but the one that in in the Theravada path that I like quite a bit is the one that Mahasi Sedao uh, wrote out in his Manual of Insight as the progress of insight, these 16 or 18 stages, depending on who's translating. <clears throat> Moving first into uh, adapting to the sense experiences that we have. So in Buddhism, there's the six senses in the West, five. Uh, in some sense, the Buddhism recognizes the five senses we five senses we recognize in the West, but adds to that the activity of mind. So the 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 tactile physical sense of the body, visual experience, auditory experience, taste and smell, and then the activity of mind, which is the thing that chooses where our attention goes to. You may, uh, if you have some uh, practice going notice that we do not take a survey of everything that's happening, a neutral survey of everything that's happening, and then construct a sense of reality from that. We really take a very highly curated sampling of what's in front of us, organized not around what's happening, but around what it means to us. We don't really store what happens. We store a collection of the things that uh, um, what uh, the meaning that we've assigned to things. So we 
we have the capacity to sense those sense gates when uh, we have contact with a, a, a sense object that that sense gate is sensitive to a consciousness of the sensing experience arises. This is still not the self-experience. Uh, <clears throat> that sensing experience is evaluated for urgency, and that almost happens in the body before it gets up into the brain. The, the pattern of senses is recognized. Stuff that seems urgent is sent to the head of the line. A lot of the sensing experience is neutral and never really enters into consciousness. And uh, if there's uh, a pleasant experience and there's time for a pleasant experience, that's added to the cue. We have good science on the mind time. Uh, it takes about three-eighths of a second to process an urgent signal. Um, the vast majority of sensing uh, experiences are not processed. And the pleasant experience takes about a half a second to process. Needs to be twice the intensity and twice the duration in order for it to get into the queue to be uh, interpreted and created into a reality. So ultimate reality is the pure sensing data. It's then processed, processed for urgency. And then uh, as each sensing experience comes to the top of the queue, it's compared to the perceptual database. And if there's a meaning in the perceptual database that matches that pattern of sensing experience, that thread of meaning is attached to it and rolls into conceptual reality, which is what the self knows, conceptual reality. The, the, the sense of self is that selfing experience really operates as the veto to boneheaded ideas is how I like to talk about it. Just as it's coming into consciousness, just as you're about to fulfill the action that the intention has been formed to make, you have the chance to review whether it's a good idea or not. And if it's not a good idea, you can veto it. Uh, an example of that would be, have you ever gotten into the first few words of a sentence, realized the reaction that the person is having to that, and then shut the whole thing down and pretended you were actually going to say something else? That would be an example of the, the self-experience intervening. Um, <clears throat> so what does this have to do with practice, this this flow into conceptual reality. Well, we want to be able to distinguish the sensing experience from the reality that we make so that we can begin to investigate the meanings that we assign to things, the, the habit of meaning that we get into. It's conditioned. That is to say, the database is full of things that we've interpreted and assigned meaning to. Uh, and that tends to uh, uh, assign meaning to the present moment. So the past is informing our consideration of what the present moment means um, uh, from the meaning that we've assigned already. Uh, each time that happens, each time we find an entry in the database that's assigned to the present moment, we're enriching the conditioning around that particular meaning thread. That makes sense. So some of these threads go way, way back, and some of them are are, are um, more recent, depending on the novel experiences that you're having. 
we do want to be able to see what that is so that we have some possibility of understanding whether or not we're assigning meaning to the present moment as it unfolds that's appropriate to what's happening and recognizing that if it isn't appropriate to what's happening, we can drop the meaning that we've assigned and remake the moment of conceptual reality that's more in line with what's actually happening. Is that making sense? In order to do that, we have to be able to separate the experiences that come together. One metaphor for that is the wharf of the, the loom. We need to understand those threads so that when we weave the tapestry of, of reality, we can see both what we're making uh, and the individual threads of meaning that are attaching. When we look at this uh, through a lens of attachment, uh, what we see is that the, the early attachment system and those meanings are assigned before the self-experience is really present and active. And so uh, we come into the experience of self and selfing uh, after uh, the basic structures of these meanings are already assigned. So there's no contrast to realize that this may be a, a distortion. One of the other things that happens in the attachment conditioning is we pinch off or limit the imagination in areas that are painful. And so they, that's one of the things that makes the, the conditioning so entrenched. If we have a novel experience where there is no previous meaning assigned to it, the imagination takes hold of it and, and assigns meaning to it. That's why novel experience is, is fresher in, in terms of meaning uh, and more relevant to the way life is for us now rather than the way that it has been. But if we restrict the imagination, because in the earlier part of conditioning, it's too painful to be able to imagine the things that we can't have, then we can't recognize in the present moment alternatives to the conditioned meaning that we assign. So part of this is also to explore the nature of our imagination. I use the word explore because this is really that process of being able to uh, be good at seeing things as they arise understanding the meaning that's associated with the, the, the conditioned uh, response to things fast enough that we're able to intervene uh, in the intentions and actions that we take in the present moment if we're uh, unconsciously assigning a meaning that isn't actually happening in the present moment, which is easy enough to have happen. We really do create the conscious experience the self-conscious experience of what's happening, then we can create uh, an endless variety of uh, realities uh, based on what's happening. The one that we create, um, while we can believe that it's an accurate version of what's happening is, is one of, uh, you know, really an endless number that we can make. So in each moment, what opens up is all of the possibilities that you could choose in that moment, the full range of them, based on what you chose in the moment before. 
as soon as you choose a meaning for this moment, all of the options except for the one you chose drop away. And in the next moment, what opens are the possibilities that are linked to the choice that you made in this moment. So that you can get onto these very virtuous uh, jags, choosing over and over again something that's good, but you can also get on these uh, into these vicious cycles of choosing over and over again things that are afflictive. So the purpose of meditation is really to be able to see that whole process unfolding so that you can come out of the limited identity, come out of the conditioning, and be into the experience of uh, being alive in this human form uh, and see the possibilities that are there without restriction and be free then to uh, manifest them. I think that in the beginning, part of this is just seeing clearly what these elements are and then understanding how the elements come together to form the sense of the self participating in the world that's separate, that duality that comes from that identification. This is me, this is the experience I'm, I'm having and the world is outside and I'm experiencing it as separate and outside, even though when you examine it, the sensing experience of the self and the sensing experience of the world are the same experience. That's what we mean by non-dual. That you see clearly that you are creating the sense of separation as a sensing experience, which is not different from the sensing of the self and the sensing of the world as separate. Is that making sense? All of that is happening in awareness so that if you move your identification from the, the sense of the, the limited self and this, the, the separate world to awareness, you see the self arising and passing and the world arising and passing in awareness rather than you know, in the limited identity. So first we explore the sensing experiences, the different, the five sense gates, the qualities of the five sense gates. And then we, we uh, explore the nature of mind selecting the experiences that we have. Uh, we tend to have these preferences for sensing experiences. And if we go into an environment which is rich with the sensing experiences that we enjoy, we feel that it's a rich environment. If we go into an environment where there isn't a lot of our preferences, we think the environment is is uh, adverse. Um, uh, so first, the five sensing experiences, the five sense gates, then the activity of mind. The coming and going is what's really next. Um, and the conditionality, which I've talked about just a little bit. Um, the choices you make in this moment set up what's possible in the next moment. As soon as you choose, that choice leads to what's possible in the moment after that. And that we have these successions of realities that we make that really, uh, in some sense, depend on the previous one. 
And then we get into a sense of the energy of the body and uh, begin to understand the restrictions in the conscious experience of self that we allow. Uh, I like to talk about that through the attachment lens because the attachment lens, uh, you can describe in descriptions of mentalizing and the fil filters that are built into each of these patterns of mentalizing. An example of that would be a dismissive person filters out the uh, embodied sense of emotion and often can filter out a cognitive sense of what the emotional experience is that they're having. doesn't mean that they're not having it. It just means it doesn't enter into the conscious self-experience. Um, <clears throat> because memory is so tied to emotional content, when you filter out the conscious experience of of emotion, you also uh, interfere with the process of making memory so that you'll notice in uh, dismissing adults, they don't tend to have much in the way of memory before the onset of puberty. So, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12, depending. It isn't uh, that the capacity of memory isn't functioning in a sense, it's that because of the suppression of emotion and the the tendency to focus away from emotional experiences, memories aren't really made. And so uh, in understanding that attachment conditioning uh, and using the meditation strategies um, that are meant to explore the sensing experiences, we can begin to draw into consciousness an awareness of the emotional experience which which changes the perception of what's happening in the present moment changes the values if you don't have the capacity for empathy you don't really have the capacity to learn much about another person beyond what they say to you what beyond what they represent and so you tend to be very oriented toward yourself and the working models of the the world that you make, because you don't get a lot of data from ex exploring uh, the, the sense of other people. But if you repair that and open up the capacity for empathy, uh, you then also open the capacity for gathering information, which is a, a total game changer. We talk about empathy as the visceral response to witnessing somebody else's physical or emotional pain. That's the basic level. The second level is this capacity to be able to recognize the facial expressions and body language of somebody and assign to that an internal meaning. So they have a, a, the look of happiness and we can infer that then they have a happy experience internal. The third is the compassion and empathy in Buddhism, where we feel in our bodies a facsimile of what they're feeling. And we use the external expression of what they're appearing to feel and the felt sense of them to evaluate whether or not we think they're telling us the truth or whether they we think that they're lying to us, which is an incomplete system. Secure people tend to also compare what somebody says they're going to do with what they do. 
and what they say they're not going to do with what they don't do. And all of those have to match in order for their, them to have a sense of belief uh, in what they're being told by the person. But in, in childhoods where uh, there's an insecure, disorganized family system, uh, children abandon comparing what people say they're going to do with what they do because it's too painful to be disappointed over and over again. It's better to just rely on what they say is happening rather than what is happening in that sense. And so as we begin to explore this and we use that uh, filter of attachment to look at the things to explore, we can begin to see where the system isn't really operating all the way and then begin to make those uh, adjustments to it so that we have that uh, complete uh, empathetic experience where we viscerally respond to the witnessing of pain. We have a capacity to decode facial expressions and a body language that's robust. We have the compassionate empathy to really touch into the feeling sense of the other person so that we have the sense of confidence in our interpretation of what's happening, a sense of safety, and then also uh, actively tracking that uh, their integrity is present in what they say they're doing and not doing. That's the thing that pulls us out of the uh, undifferentiated anxiety that insecure and disorganized people tend to live with into that uh, resting state of uh, safety, security. <clears throat> Once we have that sense of self and we've repaired all of those uh, uh, systems and pulled out the filters that are necessary uh, in order to come into the uh, uh, exploration of the energy of the body and the, the formation of reality, the coming in and out of that, uh, in uh, the habit of solidness that we get into, we move into the opening of that solidness into the flow states. So you have in the fourth stage of the progress of insight, the recognition of impermanence and rising and passing. Impermanence, of course, has a few levels of understanding. One is that nothing lasts. Everything comes and goes. That has a macro sense to it. The big things, the big meanings, the big moments come and go. But then each sensing experience comes and goes. And as you explore that, even the boundaries between inside and outside come and go. And as you move into that uh, openness around the energy states, the flow states, the sense of solid self uh, dissolves and you're just this uh, conscious energy state. That can be uh, really fun. It can also be really frightening um, the first few times, maybe it's more frightening than fun uh, as you recognize the, ident the strong identification with the sense of self begins to, to fall away and you move out of uh, that very limited identity and that 
trap of conditioning into this expansive sense of the self and world existing beyond uh, our ideas of it. Sometimes we talk about the dark night, which is a Christian description of it. Uh, the Buddhist term is the knowledge of the miseries, the fearfulness that arises because a sense of self, um, uh, our, our sense of solid self is, is uh, dashed. Uh, uh, it's, it's kind of like little Toto running across and pulling the curtain back on the Wizard of Oz and you see him not as this terrible, uh, fiery uh, experience, but this ordinary, the ordinariness of it. Um, sadness is what comes next, really. This deep sadness. Misery, maybe, is a good word. Um, nothing lasts, so you have to uh, un begin to understand the meaning of this uh, life. I mean, in some sense, we all know that it doesn't last. Um, you were born, you were an infant. That infant body gave way to the toddler body, which gave way to the child body, which gave way to the pubescent, the adolescent, the youth, the adult, to the old person, all of that changing constantly and you experiencing that changing, uh, it's easy to, to try and resist that sense of the permanence of things, to try and rest in something that won't change. <laughs> if you've listened to pop music, you know that uh, forever is the, is the goal of young love. Nothing lasts. The moment doesn't last. Over and over again, the moment doesn't last. The periods don't last. The relationships don't last. Nothing lasts. Uh, and so that the degree to which you hold on to the desire for things to be permanent and unchanging and constant is the degree uh, to which uh, your misery arises. And so uh, we begin to let that go and then of course, the body, the aging body. Uh, I think one of the great things about the, uh, the human condition is that we don't really start aging until we're in our 30s, when we're actually better able to handle it. You know, the, the mind, uh, that full-grown cognitive mind isn't really fully present until your mid-20s. And all that time you're growing up into that that uh, ability, and uh, it's so uh, enjoyable and refreshing to talk to people who are in that that stage of brightness. And then, of course, uh, that doesn't last, and you begin the process of aging. And in the beginning, it's kind of slow. There's a sort of drop-off of energy. Maybe a third of your energy goes as you move into the process of aging. So the, the youthful endeavors are, are, are now not so much possible because of the amount of energy it takes to keep going 
And then somewhere in the early to mid 50s, there's another precipitous drop of energy that introduces you to old age. Um, one of the things I notice uh, in uh, working with people who have uh, insecure, disorganized attachment is there's an accumulation of disappointment that arises over the course of a life where you keep trying to get things to work out and they don't work out so well. And you keep trying uh, to get them to work out and they don't work out so well. And as you collect this reservoir of disappointment, somewhere in your mid to late thirties, it can grow to the extent that you don't want to feel it anymore. And it inhibits your ability to try again. So you will notice that, uh, in the insecure and disorganized groups, particularly in the disorganized groups, there's a, a beginning of the process of withdrawing from trying. Um, there's a sense of urgency about the, the 30s as well in, in the West, um, in the affluent West, because uh, uh, people who have the capacity uh, for education and uh, uh, and have a sense of pursuing uh, careers, also have a sense of delaying uh, children. And so the, uh, the biology of the human body kicks in and, and fertility is uh, becomes an issue that it isn't really in the 20s or teens once uh, that happens. The traditional maps of uh, meditation are really oriented around enlightenment in, in, in the classical sense of seeing the uh, human life in a context that makes sense beyond simply the limited identity. If we add to that the, the, the attachment maps, we have a way of examining that conditioning which is less poetic and more practical. That's the reason that I like it so much. And uh, we can examine the nature of relationships and how relationships can function uh, in secure systems that they don't really function in uh, insecure and disorganized systems. We can, we can uh, map pretty accurately what your uh, conditioning is, what, what's likely to be present uh, based on what happened to you, which makes the, the understanding of the nature of your conditioning, your unique outcome, much easier. It's uh, like having a map. That's one of the things I like about maps is it gives you a short list of things to look for which is easier to find than if you have to do a complete survey of everything, e even the things that you don't know exist and uh, so wouldn't be able to spot if you saw them happening. So then you do the preliminary practices of uh, working through your attachment conditioning so you're in a place of safety so that you can go into the uh, examinations of 
the human conditioning beyond the, the confinement of the limited identity, the conscious self-experience. So then the idea is to figure out how you're doing, which is also, I think, one of the reasons why I like the attachment uh, maps in the beginning is because you can see whether you're making progress and whether the practices that you're doing are actually shifting that in a way that's practical. You, uh, one of the things about having the self-experience the way that it is as the means of consciously understanding what's happening is, and the fuzziness of that is that if you think about yourself in this moment, do you imagine, let's say, uh, as a five-year-old, that you had the same experience of understanding yourself and what's happening as you do now? Uh, and most of us, when we think of ourselves at five, there's a continuity in the way that we, we understand that. Even though the five-year-old version of yourself was in a completely different body with a completely different cognitive capacity with a completely different understanding that couldn't possibly be as reflective as you are uh, now. We still can have the sense uh, that, oh yeah, that was me. I, I got that. It's, it, there's a continuity. Um, and so one of the things that I notice in, in, in practicing as the uh, understanding not only of the attachment conditioning and the change that comes from uh, being able to perceive uh, yourself in a in a more secure way, uh, and also as you deepen the understanding of the nature of the human conditioning, the self-experience is still in continuity with the way that it's always been. And so what you notice uh, as the audience uh, to yourself really to the the doingness of who you are is that you're just choosing differently than you did before and it's in some sense even surprising to yourself that uh, you're just choosing differently you just make a different version of reality and you make a different choice about how to respond to it than you did before but the self-experience uh, is still in continuity with the, the process of understanding who you are, that making sense. And so in some sense, there's a delight to that, but there's also a, a bitterness uh, to it when you begin to recognize that actually your capacities weren't the problem. Um, your perception of what was happening was the problem. So there's a wonderful insight in that, but it also has a tendency to touch into the what I call the terrible sadness of the unconscious conditioned response to life that a lot of us spend a lot of time in. That can be uh, used as a, a, an energy source to propel the pr practice forward so that you move into uh, consciousness of what's actually happening uh, and uh, an understanding of the meanings that you make out of it. And 
a, a facility of acting in a skillful way in the world that comes from that. So I do think it, it is important to examine where you're at in your practice, uh, where you're trying to go in your practice, um, whether or not you're successfully progressing in your practice, all of those things are useful. And often, in order to do that, you'll need to be in a dialogue with either a community of practitioners or with a teacher so that there's some contrast that will allow you to see what's happening. You can get into some cul-de-sacs. I know in, um, I don't know how long ago it was, while I got really entranced with uh, the do-nothing practice and um, and I spent a couple of years doing it, got really good at just settling into this place and it felt really good. Um, but in reporting regularly to Shinzen, he said uh, after a couple of years, you know, you're not really making progress. I want you to change uh, the techniques that you're doing and move back into a more straight Vipassana. Which I did and felt quite uncomfortable doing because the that, that place of just deep relaxation was so enjoyable. So those kinds of things are important. Uh, someone that you trust who knows what they're doing, who can reflect back to you the progress that you're making, make sure that it that you're not getting uh, sidetracked. How's that make sense? So why don't we do a little bit of practice? Um, I think uh, a focus on intentional positivity is a good idea. So let's do some loving kindness practice focused on self. And then we'll begin with an easy person. So go ahead and take your meditation posture. <clears throat> Let go of the meditation. Come back into the present moment experience. How'd that go? So thank you for your practice. The third uh, day of the four-day level one is happening on Saturday. Tomorrow night, I'm doing uh, a talk on how to date uh like a secure person, even if you're not secure yet. That's at seven, sign up for that. Um, we will have a new level two starting in uh, January, January 19th, it's a Friday. We do uh, uh, one class in the cycles in the, the morning. So it's, uh, I think it's 10.30 to 12.30 in the morning, uh, which is good for European time. And if you're free during the day, that works. I am uh, going to be doing uh, a two-week retreat in uh, in a retreat center outside of Gantz, Poland, in the spring. So if you feel like coming to Europe, then I think I'm going to do a non-residential retreat in the Netherlands uh, in the beginning of June. Um, might be fun. 
anyway, most of this stuff uh, is up on the website. Take a look at it. I do offer the teaching freely, but I do hope that if you can, you'll make a donation. There's a link on the website to do that. Any amount is appreciated. It helps support me and also the work that Metagroup is doing. Really appreciate your practice, and uh, we'll see you soon. Bye. Thank you.